Hello and welcome to Dr. Hogg's Pod. The theme for this week is chronic pain. And joining me today, we've got Tim Bushnell, who is a consultant specialist in pain management at East Kent Hospital. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Um, pain's a massive issue. It causes a great deal of distress and misery for many many people. It causes enormous amount of lost productivity. It causes all sorts of issues to do with mental health and as a GP, it consumes a substantial number of the appointments that are booked at our surgery on surgeries across the UK. Um, perhaps before we go into that in more detail, you could tell us a little bit about your role as a pain specialist and how is it that you ended up getting into that specialty? Um, I'd always, I've always been interested in pain. Um, through medical school, um, I found myself drawn rather against my uh, first wishes into anaesthetics because I thought in anaesthetics the patients would all be fast asleep and, and I like talking to patients. Uh, but I discovered that this was the perfect home uh, for someone interested in pain. And in fact, um, most of my patients were wide awake most of the time. Uh, so I worked my way up through anaesthetics, which in this country is very much the traditional way into chronic pain. And within um, a few years, I, I knew that it was chronic pain medicine that I wanted to uh, specialise in. Um, as I say, I was lucky I was in the right uh, profession. Um, I met some amazing people. I worked with some uh, tremendous professors as I uh, worked my way up and then was lucky enough to be appointed as a consultant at uh, the William Harvey uh, with the specific purpose of setting up a pain medicine clinic. They hadn't had one up until that point. Um, I very quickly became full-time. It's still very common for pain consultants to do anaesthetics as well as pain medicine. I was one of the fairly early people to convert to full-time pain medicine, though I have also worked as a consultant in palliative care in that time, working in local hospices. Um, but uh, 25 years or so um, as a consultant, specialising in chronic pain uh, rather than acute pain. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about why it is you think that the need for specialist pain services arose? Because as doctors, we've all got access to pain medication. We've all got access to very powerful painkilling drugs. And yet at the same time, you know, people still suffer with a great deal of distress. Well, the sad truth is that patients kept telling us we weren't treating pain very well. And uh, the very first pain clinic was in America in the 40s and was set up by a chap whose own pain, um, he just couldn't find anyone to sort it out for him. Uh, in the 60s, the palliative movements with Dame Cicely Saunders were reacting to the horrendous amounts of poorly controlled pain that they came across and in the same year that St Christopher's was uh, founded um, a group of anaesthetists met at uh, St Thomas's Hospital um, and they formed themselves into a group called the Intractable Pain Society because they recognised that they were seeing pain badly treated within their hospital and that they wanted to do to do the job better 
Um, and I was lucky enough to be a senior registrar at St Thomas's a few years later, but I met a number of those very first consultants. And essentially, it came about because we recognised pain management wasn't being well well performed. And sadly, the evidence is it still is not performed particularly well. Um, and, and there are still surveys showing that pain is difficult to control under certain circumstances, uh, and particularly chronic pain. That brings me to my next point. So what do we mean by the term chronic pain as opposed to acute pain? Um, we're rather old-fashioned. Um, in pain medicine, we use the word chronic in terms of time. The younger generation use it in terms of difficulty. Um, but to us, it essentially means pain that's been going on for longer than three months after the healing of the causative event. Now, that presupposes we know what the causative event is, and there's often doubt about that. But basically, we're talking about pain that has continued after the initiating event seems to have settled. Different people will experience pain in different ways, depending on all sorts of different factors. Do we have any sense of understanding about why some people will experience pain in certain circumstances, but others not so much? So in particular, I'm thinking about back pain, for example, you know, there's lots of people out there, if you scan their back, they might have lots of wear and tear in their back, but they may very well have no symptoms and, and vice versa. I think the great breakthrough in understanding pain came in the 60s, when we, for the first time, realised that pain is not just a simple neurological event um, and that it is actually, to use the jargon, what we call biopsychosocial. There is a real, genuine psychological, social, behavioural elements, not just to the way we react to pain, but to the pain itself. Um, scientific thinking really only started looking at pain in the 1640s and had a rather straight, um, a rather concrete view of pain, thinking it really was just nerve impulses. Well, that, that's true. But what uh, Professor Wall and Professor Malzak discovered in, in, and demonstrated in the 60s is actually, this is an active brain process. And it, it's not that pain goes on and then we think about it and that makes it worse or we don't think about it and we don't notice it it means that the pain disappears, pain stops if we can use certain psychological or behavioural um, techniques. Um, it is the pain that is genuinely varying and changing in reaction not just to physical events like trauma, but to psychological, social and behavioural events. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was the, the real turnaround. But it, the, the implications are very, very complicated. And it, it is very difficult to, to work that through. And, and medicine still, I think, struggles with that concept. And, and, and doctors sometimes don't really understand the implications of what was really discovered uh, in, in the 60s. I imagine selling that concept to patients must often sound quite alien to many 
many it, of them. It, it is very difficult because we have this rather simple idea that pain is is what you get when tissues are damaged. Uh, and of course you do. And uh, there is no doubt that, that pain uh, and damage are very closely interlinked. But it's much more than that. It's an active process. Um, uh, it, I, I never find it easy to explain, but your brain is active. It, it's like a, a spy master. Um, a spy master? Yes. So imagine um, you're in charge of MI5 or whatever. You arrive at your desk. Now, do you go through all your spies in alphabetical order, looking at Austria and Australia before you get to Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, areas of the world where things are more troubled. I don't think you do. I suspect that the chap in charge of M55 sits down and says, right, I want all the information on what's going on in Iraq and Iran and Yemen. And eventually, if he's got a bit of spare time after lunch, he may have a quick look through Austria and Australia. Now, your brain is doing this with information that comes in. And the thing with pain is it, is it summons the brain's attention. So the brain concentrates on it and it focuses on it and it thinks carefully about it. Take the example of phantom limb pain. If you had a spy in a troubled area, and he suddenly stopped reporting, would you be happy about it? Mm. No, if you're a spy master, you'd say, hang on, this is a bit worrying. What did he tell us yesterday? And if yesterday he Where's told he us- Where's he gone? Yeah. Has he been knocked off? Absolutely. Whereas yeah. if the spy in Austria doesn't tell you anything day by day by day, you tend to assume, well, there's nothing very much to tell. Yeah. And this is the way the brain is active in pain. It's not passive. It's not just receiving messages of damage. It is actively searching for information. You have an interesting anecdote about people's expectations of pain, don't you, relating to a, a tradesman? Is that something you could well, tell our uh, listeners? Yes, this is, this is um, absolutely true. Um, there was a lot of building going on at St Thomas's when I was a senior registrar there and we had two patients within um, a very short period of time and they'd uh, both had accidents with nail guns. I don't know if you've seen these things but they uh, they shoot six inch nails uh, into concrete, uh, are very powerful, very frightening gadgets. Um, I was called down to casualty to see a patient who by mistake had actually managed to shoot one of these through his foot and the poor chap was in tremendous pain. Uh, the team in A&E had done a great job trying to bring it under control, they'd given him intravenous um, morphine but the poor chap was still in terrible pain. So we took him to theatre, we had great difficulty um, inducing anaesthesia but we did. Uh, the orthopaedic surgeon, this chap is still in his day glow um, kit, we couldn't touch the poor chap. Um, so we get him into theatre and the orthopaedic surgeon says, well, look, we've got to take that boot off because there's this poor chap with his boot with his six inch nail going in one side and coming out the other. So we take the boot off and the six inch nail comes out with it because the six inch nail has actually gone between the toes and hadn't broken the skin. And yet the pain the chap felt was absolutely 
real and had taken huge amounts of opioids and anaesthetic to bring under control. A couple of days later, we had to admit to ITU another workman from the same area who was having uh, uh, fits. Uh, poor chap, as soon as we x-rayed him, we found he'd got a six-inch nail in his brain. And when he woke up, and he, he was absolutely fine, I'm delighted to say, um, he told us that he'd been going up a ladder and the chap ahead of him had been swinging his six-inch nail gun. And the chap had actually complained. He'd said, you be careful with that because they're dangerous. And he, he'd actually hit his head and he, he, he'd touched the top of his head and found a little bit of blood, but it was just a scratch. He didn't notice anything else. Well, in fact, his mate had actually shot a six-inch nail straight through the top of his brain, uh, straight through his skull, into his brain. Um, and the gentleman had felt no pain whatsoever. It's <laughs> extraordinary. Extraordinary how different uh, amount of uh, trauma to uh, your body tissues yep. can result in entirely yep. different. Absolutely, um, and there are lots of symptoms. stories, um, other stories of uh, similar. But that's right. The a fixed amount of damage does not give a fixed amount of pain, and, and that's something which, uh, to be honest with you, doctors struggle with. So it must be jolly difficult for patients. One of the things I find difficult as a GP in relation to pain, when I'm talking about this concept of the biopsychosocial model, is I often feel patients are worried that I think they're um, making yep. it up or that yep. it's all in their head or that are a little bit crazy. Is that a problem that you experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm afraid our society has does have difficulty with this and, and, and doctors have not been good in getting over what they mean. Um, what I always say to patients is that I've never yet seen someone who has not had both a physical and a mental element to their pain. I, I really don't see how a patient suffering with real physical pain cannot be frightened or angry or worried or concerned uh, particularly if the doctor sitting opposite just doesn't seem to understand what they're saying um, this is well documented but not in the medical literature if you look outside if you look into uh, literature and poetry this has been talked about for ages Emily Dickinson talked about pain having an element of blank there's a very famous um, writer who said that to to know pain personally is a certainty but to be told about pain always brings doubt and i think human beings you're very certain about pain you'll suffer yourself but for some reason if somebody else tells you about their pain we start to doubt it we question it so i think i totally understand why patients are very uh, uneasy um, if I talk to them about the mental aspect of their pain but if I assure them that this is absolutely normal this is the very nature of pain I think they very quickly understand what I mean though because to be in pain is to be worried to be frightened to be concerned and as I say particularly in a situation where doctors are not always very good or very effective at treating it
I think for many people, doctors included, the, the idea that you know there isn't always a physical cause for the pain is often something that's very difficult mm. to let go of. And quite a lot of my time as a GP is spent discussing the idea of whether investigations are necessary or not, particularly in regards to back pain, do I need an x-ray, do I need an MRI scan and what have you. Is that something that you find challenging to talk about? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I uh, Perhaps I've got rose-tinted glasses, I don't know. I can think of very few patients in 25 years I've ever seen where there was no physical element at all. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of any. But there are certainly times when the physical element may have been well in the past and that what we're dealing with is is an echo um, or a problem with the pain system. Um, I think the we have a medical model that is aimed at cure. Um, and the NHS and a lot of what we do is really aimed at getting people in, finding a cause for their pain, curing it, and that being the end of it. And the sad truth of chronic pain is that is not how it goes. There are conditions where the nerves become damaged, for instance, and the infection itself that has caused the damage may be now in the past, completely treated. But the damage to the nerves goes on. Now, it's completely understandable then that a patient, you know, in the NHS with its emphasis on diagnosis, um, wonders whether a scan or an X-ray will help. But I would try and say to them, look, we're here to manage them and I don't want to do anything to them that's just going to delay the process. I want to get on and manage the pain. And I would ask, well, will further scans actually help? It has to be said that we find an awful lot of red herrings. Um, many of the changes that, that doctors talk about on x-rays are purely observations. Wear and tear it is an observation. Um, so, for example, in a, a spinal MRI scan, there'll be lots of wear, wear and tear. There'll be dehydrated discs. There'll be tears of the discs. Well, and so on. the will. This is the point. Um, in a normal person of a certain age, you would expect a certain number of changes. The yeah. question is, are these yeah. responsible for the change in pain? Yeah. I mean, it isn't very widely um, advertised, but what we term a prolapsed disc, I mean, a great big chunk of disc pressing on a nerve, that is found in 70% of all MRIs on people with no pain. Yeah. So if you could find 100 people who'd never had a day's back pain, you would find 70 of them had something which under different circumstances, an orthopaedic surgeon would at least consider surgery for. I had somebody not so long back with a particular finding on their scan and it was all their hopes essentially have been placed on that finding and then there was some discussion about um, whether that was a relevant finding or not and my view was that it probably wasn't but that then led to quite a lot of 
um, discontent, yeah. I think, on, on the part of that, I, that I, individual. Um, and it was tricky. It was tricky. The, the trouble with back pain, is, as I see it, and I, I, you know, I'm talking very much as a pain clinician and orthopedic surgeons may see it differently, but the way pain doctors understand back pain is being largely about the way the back works. Um, medicine in this country and in the West is very much aimed at diagnosis. It's very much aimed at finding something wrong which causes a particular problem. The truth of the matter is though, sometimes things just don't work well. Think about the computer I've got at home. Um, so why is that model of thinking, why has it been so slow to take within to the medical community and amongst the general public? Well, essentially the Western medical model is a model of diagnosis. It is the Sherlock Holmes approach. It's finding one thing that explains everything. And we as doctors have been um, involved in this and taught that this is the right approach for hundreds of years and patients too. And we do look for a cause for everything, a single cause. But it isn't, that isn't a very good model for everything. As I say, we all know, we've all had experience where our computers stop working. Now, are they broken? If you opened them up and looked inside, would you find something on fire? Would you find something that's fallen off? The answer is, we know, usually not. Usually it's that the thing isn't working well together. And a lot of aspects of back pain are not to disregard discs or wear and tear or you know these other changes but not to see them as causes of the pain but rather causes of the back not working well and that's what gives pain so this is a case of a pr issue would you say then with respect to managing pain problems i think it's that we grossly oversimplify i'm afraid i think at all levels pain doctors patients, medical students, scientists, government, we've been very tempted to oversimplify pain. We've, it's comfortable to think of it as a, caused by a single thing. If you put the single thing right, everything will get better. And, and sometimes that is right, don't get me wrong. But often I'm afraid it's not. I'm afraid it is more complicated. And I think we have to be honest with our patients and say that there are times we cannot cure their pain but that doesn't mean to say we can't help them manage. And that's where a psychobiosocial model isn't just uh, a, a, a fancy medical definition. It's a wonderful, exciting opportunity. Because what it says is, all right, there's a physical problem that science, as it is at the moment, can't put right. But the pain is also influenced by other things which we can help. So it gives us all sorts of new options and new ways of looking at pain, uh, which I think is really exciting. Could we move on to what actually happens at a clinic? Mm. Can you walk us through the steps from the initial assessment? Well, I would say all pain clinics are a little bit different and, and there's probably more variation amongst pain clinicians than perhaps other areas of surgery or medicine but generally speaking uh, the first appointment at a pain clinic is is really important 
and in many pain clinics will actually not be just with one person. It will be a multidisciplinary assessment. Um, often the patient meeting not just a doctor, but perhaps a pharmacist or a nurse, sometimes even a clinical psychologist. Um, we believe in this idea that psychological and behavioural and social elements are important as are physical and therefore we need to assess them all. So I think um, in all clinics there will be an attempt to get that. My own clinic I'm afraid we, we didn't have the staff to do a, a to have different people meeting the patients but we would always ask the patients to complete a questionnaire which gave a little bit of insight into what's going on in their life, other aspects um, uh, some psychological aspects. As I always say to my patients, uh, I, I don't worry about patients who are fed up and depressed who see me because that's normal. If I were in pain, I'd be fed up and depressed. Um, but it does make it, it can make it difficult for them. So it's good that I know that. So I like to get that sort of assessment. To be honest with you, uh, the thing I feel the first consultation in my clinic was about was allowing the patient to feel heard because I'm afraid so many of the patients who came to see me would would tell me that they didn't really feel they'd had a chance to to be heard and if anything that my clinic I hope offered to its patients it was that we really did listen so the first consultation to me is about listening it's about getting as big and broader picture as you can and if, if, if we can do that by introducing the patient to other members of the team, nurses, physios, uh, pharmacists, psychologists, that's brilliant. But it's really about listening and getting a whole picture and hopefully being able to recognise with the patient where we want to go. Because again, we, we tend to assume in medicine that we want to cure it. We we're going to send a, you for a blood test or an x-ray, we're going to tell you what it is, and then we're going to cure it. With pain, oh, I'm afraid that just is so rarely possible. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't agree what it is the patient wants. And in my clinic, one big thing we'll talk about is where do the patient want to be? Where do they want to be in five months, five years? What are we trying to do? Where are we trying to go? And hopefully when the patient finish that that first long appointment and and these consultations are long and they're hard um, but at the end of it I hope the patient feels that they're understood and that a sort of common idea of where we're going what our plan what our target might be, be should be for the future mm -hmm. so I imagine a lot of that process is helps to build up trust with the patient as I often get the sense that with some people they have lost faith in the medical profession oh. which is entirely understandable I completely agree uh, and it is so sad and the majority of patients and people have done studies but most patients who come to a chronic pain clinic have been in pain for more than three years um, which is a terrible terrible thing to say and who wouldn't be who wouldn't be fed up and cheesed off and, and angry? So I, I'm, I am never surprised when patients are down or angry or fed up. All I hope is that they'll be up for trying, trying something new. Uh, and that's really all we say to our patients. Look, please 
gives a chance, gives a chance to, to try something different, to look at this in a, in a slightly different way. But no, it is really difficult. And I'm afraid pain management clinics in this country are, there's not nearly enough of them. And the time means that patients have had a often very long periods of problem before they actually get to us. How do you go about measuring the success of your interventions at the pain clinic? We obviously, obviously hope that patients who've been to a pain clinic will find their pain is lessened. But this absolutely isn't our primary target. Unfortunately, there is an awful lot of pain that we can't reduce enough to make a huge difference to the patient. But that doesn't mean to say we can't help them with their goals. So what we really work towards with patients is finding goals, finding targets for them. And those targets are things which are important to the patient. Um, I get a lot of uh, stick from my colleagues because I love um, artists and musicians and if anybody's a musician, um, the, my colleagues know I'll take much longer than usual. But it gives us something to talk about. I had, if I may, a, a wonderful patient who came to me. Um, he had tremendous pain in his hand. And I helped his pain a bit, but I couldn't do much more than that, to be honest. He'd had it for many years. But I knew he was a musician, and I actually recommended him changing the instrument he played. Um, I can tell you he's not a patient of mine anymore, but we do play in a number of bands. Uh, you can never get hold of him on the phone because he's always at one band or another playing a different instrument. He still gets pain in his hand, but by changing his instrument, he is actually now able to do the thing which he loves, and which is he's very good at doing, which is playing brass instruments. Mm -hmm. So it's a case of finding goals for patients. It, it, and that might be sitting and having a meal with the family. It might be going out and walking the dog. It may be playing with the grandchildren. If we can find those targets, we can really work towards those. Whereas if we just want to reduce the pain by a couple of numbers on a scale, that, that isn't about quality of life. It, it, and really the, the target of my pain clinic was about helping patients get back their quality of life, get back their dignity, their independence the things they wanted to do. Could we move on a little bit and ask you what role medication plays in managing chronic pain? I'm a believer in medication. Some of my colleagues in pain medicine are less so. Um, but I think it only has a certain place and that as part of a much wider approach. I think it is very unusual that a patient with chronic pain is going to find their, their world, their quality of life changed radically by a medication only. Now it does happen, but usually it doesn't. What medications though is, can be is very useful adjuncts. So if we saw a patient with back pain, whose back pain was making it very difficult for them to sleep, which meant then that they were too tired to do anything in the day, that they enjoyed perhaps being out in the garden, then a medication which actually helped their pain enough to get them to sleep might actually be really useful. It wouldn't cure their problem, but what it might do is actually get them doing the thing they enjoyed, which was 
being out in the garden or being out with grandchildren or whatever. So I think medication has a real role. I don't think doctors have been very good about medication. Um, we've followed the wrong guidelines. Um, we've been influenced by drug companies. Uh, and actually medications in chronic pain have been shown to work differently. So it's a complicated area, but I think they have a place. I very rarely think though that they are the only approach, part of the approach. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that's something that many doctors, myself included, have been guilty of, is just prescribing a drug, often a powerful drug, in the hope that it might alleviate that yep. person's symptoms, only subsequently to be disappointed. And one of the main concerns relates to opiate prescribing. So these very, very powerful drugs, um, there was an article in The Lancet a couple of years ago which showed that opiate prescribing doubles between 1998 and 2016. So these are drugs like morphine, tramadol and so on. Why do you think that increase has come about? I think we have to remember what was going on in the 70s and 80s. Um, the hospice movement, palliative care had just started and had drawn the curtain back of the tremendous pain that patients were suffering in the dying period. And they pointed out how effective opioids could be. And one of the great, wonderful changes of the palliative care movement was to make the prescribing of these drugs um, in the end of life period acceptable and the improved quality of life that those drugs have given and taking away the, the desperate spectre of pain on the deathbed has been a, a huge gift to mankind. The trouble is <laughs> that we rather assumed therefore that opioids which were so good in the hospice situation were actually going to be good for everything else. There was then a movement to try and improve the pain after surgery. Sadly, in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, patients suffered a lot of pain after surgery. And anaesthetists were, were in the forefront and the vanguard and telling people, look, we can use opioids better, they can help. So I think through the 70s and 80s, doctors have got used to using opioids more and finding them effective in those two circumstances. The problem came that we then started saying, well, there's a lot of patients with chronic pain, let's use those same opioids. And the sad truth is opioids just don't work anything like as well in that situation. I do have quite a lot of patients though who often uh, come out of hospital or have been to outpatient clinics or pain clinics who are prescribed opiate drugs and uh, or patches, pain-killing patches. And my experience seems to be that often they appear to get limited benefit from these. As why, why do we have this uh, idea on the one hand that um, opiates are not great for sort of long-term pain, chronic pain, and yet at the same time, patients who don't uh, are not at the end of their life or not being treated for cancer-related problems seem to be getting these drugs prescribed for them? Well, I think, first of all, again, I don't want to appear to be 
being an apologist for pain doctors and acute pain teams in hospital, but this realisation of the lack of effect of opioids in chronic pain hasn't been around that long. It's been thought about and feared for, for 10 years, certainly, I would agree. But 20 years ago, there was an, actually a pressure on pain doctors in exactly the reverse to actually give patients the benefit of a trial of opioid drugs. And although we nowadays quite rightly consider opioids, tramadol and codeine in the same breath as morphine, again, 10, 20 years ago, we didn't. And pain doctors felt that actually tramadol and codeine were not a great risk to patients by comparison to oxycodone and whatever. I think the drug companies have produced some amazing, wonderful preparations which have been really helpful to patients, things like patches. And you can't blame doctors for wanting, for, for trying. Um, but there is no doubt that with a lot of chronic pain, I'm afraid they, these things don't seem to be massively effective. Again, though, we have to be realistic, and that means not simplify. To say that opioids don't work in chronic pain is to quote scientific papers. If you ask somebody who's frightened, who's in terrible pain, who seems to be getting no benefit from people, if they take a drug which makes them feel warm and comfortable and less anxious, would that not be helpful? And that's the trouble with opioids. Opioids may not help chronic pain as doctors define it, as, as the social services define it in terms of earning, going back to work, but in terms of reducing anxiety and that feeling of helplessness, it's out there in the literature, I'm showing my age now, comfortably numb. Mm. But patients do build up a tolerance to, to that though, don't they? Patients are very wise and sensible. 50% yeah. at least of patients who go on to opioids take themselves off them within a month. Mm -hmm. Patients are very wise, but there are times when that can be difficult and, and there are uh, genetic differences in this which mean for some patients it's very difficult once started to stop them. I, I am not an apologist for opioids. I think we have overused opioids. Mm -hmm. I think it is sort of understandable why we have and I don't think this is all down to careless, lazy doctors or nurses. I think it was down to people genuinely doing their best, but not really perhaps understanding the difficulties and the, the long-term uh, problems. When you say that a patient finds it difficult to get off these drugs, does that mean that they're addicted to them? What, what, well, what, what's the right terminology? I, I'm not a, not a psychiatrist, so I, I'm afraid I'm always slightly hesitant about these words, but you can become addicted to opioids. There is absolutely no doubt, and there is no doubt that the medical profession underestimated the risk. Um, I used to quote to patients a risk which I now understand and realise from the literature was wrong and, and underestimated the risk by probably a factor of... 10 or 20 or even 100, it is still relatively low. What happens for many patients, though, is their body gets used to it, what we call habituated. In addiction, usually there is a need to continue to feel the drug. So the dose that patients take escalates, even though they know it's doing them harm. 
Many patients I saw in the pain clinic were stuck on opioids in that they were taking a certain amount. It was doing far, far less than they wanted or wished. Their GPs were very keen for them to come off it, but it was very difficult to do because their body was now used to this opioid being present. And that, I don't feel is addiction. I think that's what we call habituation. It means your body's used to it. It's still difficult, but you can come off them. It needs help. It needs patience, um, but it can be done. And uh, it usually is done. Um, but I did find quite a number of patients felt a lot better when those sorts of understanding it in that way rather than perhaps this rather black and white thing that we tend to you know tell patients they're addicted i always felt that was a bit unfair actually quite a strong word to it use is. it's got all sorts of connotations doesn't it about um misuse of drugs or uh, even illicit drugs it's a term, term that's often associated with that a, a lot of addiction, uh, our knowledge of addiction has come from people who have misused opioids. They've been taking opioids not for their pain-killing effects, but for their central, their brain effects. I, I don't, don't know, but I don't think I met any patient in my clinic who took their opioid for its brain effects. They took it for its pain-killing effect. But, sadly, that pain-killing effect was often woefully short of what they hoped it would do what we wanted it to do and it often came with terrible problems and they were as keen as I was to get them off the drugs if they possibly could. That brings me to my next point which is that I do see quite a number of individuals who are still suffering with a great deal of pain. They, they may very well have already been to a pain clinic and they might well be on a lot of opiate related medication and I often try and initiate these conversations mm. around the idea of whether we should be continuing on these medications and I often find patients are quite fearful of that idea. Uh, absolutely and, and, and again I, I totally understand patients. I, I, I wonder, I think a lot of patients have, have seen these conversations with doctors as as a withdrawal process of taking things away from them. Things may be bad for them but they're worried they could be even worse without the drugs. And therefore, if doctors come to them and say, right, I want to stop this drug and nothing else, yeah. then I, I, I can totally understand why patients are very hesitant. But most people who are only getting limited benefit from these pain medication, who have built up a tolerance over many, many years, it's not actually true that they're likely to experience a sudden increase in the level of pain if you slowly and carefully withdraw that medication. Is that, is that right? No, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, and indeed, it is possible they will even find their pain get better. There is a, 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 a concept, something we recognise, of opioid-induced pain, that taking opioids when they're not working, they can actually make certain pains worse. So I completely agree with you. But I do think pain being a psychobiosocial experience, we really have to help patients in that situation. Mm. And I think we can be most effective helping them to come off opioids when at the same time we can come up with other ideas. Um, and hopefully that won't be other medications for fear of the same thing happening all over again. But it may be a different approach to their... To their I, I, 
I have to say, for the pain clinics in East Kent, we, we didn't prescribe opioids at all. Um, we, we, we were very happy to have patients on opioids when we felt the benefits it gave them were, were worth having. But most of the time, we would say to patients, look, I don't think this drug's very helpful, do you? And the patient would usually say, actually, no, I don't think it is. So we'll say, right, let's try something different. Let's try a different approach. And as part of that, let's see if we can get you off the drug. Your GP will be a lot happier about your general health. You may find some of your symptoms actually get better rather than worse. But what I do think you'll find is that things won't be much different. Yeah. And I do agree with you, patients often but it it's a very frightening process yeah what are the long-term risks associated with opiate use so you hear about in the united states that they have this thing the opiate crisis is is that something that we're at risk of happening in the uk well again one doesn't want to appear to be um uh, overconfident but actually no the situation I think in America is different um, and the opioid crisis, some of the things that fueled it in the United States don't happen here. There isn't direct advertising to patients. Um, the sort of drugs which fueled the opioid crisis in America um, are much more limited, much more restricted in this country. Mm. In this country, we have a, a wonderful um, speciality uh, of general practice, very highly regarded, very highly skilled um, practitioners, and that patients go to them. In, in states when this started, family practice didn't have the same, um, it certainly was not the same as general practice in this country, and the way therefore that patients in America interacted with their health care system was massively different. And that did lead to a certain amount of um, encouragement from drug companies. I think that's probably fair to mm. say. Um, the pressures are different in this country, but there is no doubt the healthcare system is under huge pressure. We do still have a very simple view of pain sometimes. And we do, I think, over-prescribe because many of the... I keep saying, you know, let's do something else. There's alternatives. But those alternatives are often time-consuming, very skilled. They often require multidisciplinary teams, and they're not easy to access. Yeah. So I, I do recognise how difficult this is. I don't think the opioid epidemic, as has happened in the United States, would happen in this country or Europe. But I do think we have over-relied on these drugs. I do think a lot of patients have found themselves stuck on them and found them difficult to stop. And I do think that with um, the situation in the NHS at the moment, a lot of patients are very frightened at the concept of taking something away, how, albeit that it doesn't do much for them, but leaving them in an even worse situation than they were before. But in a small proportion of patients who are taking opiates, particularly in high quantities, over um, I think 100 milligrams per day, they are at serious risk of uh, oh, yes. certain complications. What, what sort of problems have you experienced or heard of? There are very serious risks. There's very serious risks um, to one's respiratory health. There's very serious risks to um, uh, your your kidneys, gut problems are very serious. We, we certainly, in my hospital, came across a long, lot of problems with very serious um, gastrointestinal problems from 
long-term high uh, doses of opioid. Uh, there are psychological problems. There are changes to your hormone levels. Um, certainly, uh, there are very big implications to uh, your fertility. Um, and if you were to get pregnant, there are real risks to the unborn child. So no, there are, opioids have very serious risks when taken for even relatively short periods, um, a month or two, but beyond that, some of these risks, I'm afraid, become definitely significant. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to touch on a comment you just made about difficulty accessing these services. I'm interested to know how you see uh, this problem of chronic pain playing out because as a GP, you know, I would love to be able to spend more time addressing, as you say, the biopsychosocial model. The, the practicalities of it are that it's often very difficult to dedicate large quantities of time to address these issues. Um, that's not to say that I don't try, but... Um, getting people into dedicated pain yeah. services is often very difficult. Often there's quite a long wait time. Often people happen to travel long distances. And um, sometimes people miss appointments and then they're booted off the system. What's your take on the situation? The whole system is, is very definitely uh, less than ideal. Um, it's very difficult to recruit pain doctors, as we touched upon at the beginning. It's not a particularly sexy area. And recruiting anaesthetists, anaesthetists are incredibly highly qualified nowadays. It's, a, it, it's one of the absolute top specialty areas to get in. They have the most phenomenally talented uh, applicants to get into anaesthetics. But a lot of them do ITU and obstetrics and theatre and whatever. It's very difficult to get people to come into pain clinics. So first of all, you have problems recruiting. It's back to this PR issue. Uh, that there is a definite yeah. element to that. Um, there's no doubt the NHS is set up and uh, the way it's funded is uh, in favour of acute intervention. And it's very difficult to get for a trust to support prolonged interventions, interventions that take place over a number of, uh, of visits to a doctor. And hospitals and pain clinics are under huge pressure to discharge patients. That has sometimes meant that pain clinics have, have become very, uh, have, have tended to use one-off interventions when they possibly can, so injections and things like that. And, and that means we've perhaps forgotten the biopsychosocial model a little bit. Community um, practice has picked up a little bit, and particularly our nursing colleagues. And certainly in my own area in East Kent, there is a fantastic, thriving pain clinic in the community. It has actually very little medical input. It's run by very highly qualified specialist nurses. Um, we always felt it worked at its absolute best when it worked beside the hospital clinic, when there was the specialist consultant input and then the, the wonderfully skilled um, nursing, pharmacy, psychology approach from the community pain team. And that's how we felt it worked best. And that is the model. Um, I'm proud to say uh, copied a little bit from what's been going on in South Kent um, that is being recommended around the country. 
But it requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of very skilled nurses who need training and experience. It requires psychologists. If pain doctors um, have difficulty recruiting, psychologists who are able to help patients with pain have even greater problem recruiting um, to their numbers. So it is, it is difficult. And I would be the first to admit that pain clinics haven't been the answer that perhaps we hoped they might be. Um, uh, I, I personally just feel we cannot get away from this, that it needs time, that patients need to feel listened to, They that the story has to be heard and the solutions and ideas that we're going to give to them need to be thought about. They're not simple and if we keep trying to find simple, we'll, we'll understand the mistakes we made with opioids but we make the same mistakes with something else where will we hope that one thing will do everything when pain is just much much more complicated but I do think the uh, what we call the multidisciplinary approach and a more um, primary care approach uh, we hope will will make a real difference and really help patients in the future and help GPs as well yeah do you have any advice to patients who are interested in researching a little bit more about their problems related to pain? The British Pain Society have a very useful page for patients. I think with certain conditions, I, I don't know, I saw a lot of patients with fibromyalgia, which is a particularly difficult problem. Now, there is actually some very good stuff online. and It's a very good place to start. And it can give you some really good advice about the sort of things to to think about before you go to the pain clinic, before you go even to your GP, because it'll help you perhaps get your mind around some of these ideas, some of the things the GP will want to know, something the pain clinic would find useful to know. I fear what one ha might have to do is accept that cure may not be the target, but management, I used to tell the same silly story, it shows how old I am, but uh, to me the greatest Olympian was Redgrave. Um, winning six gold medals or whatever it was. And yet, of course, he has diabetes. Now, have we ever cured Redgrave's diabetes? No, we never cured it, but we have managed it. We managed it enough for him to win six Olympic gold medals. So sometimes, you know, management can be pretty good. <laughs> Tim, I'd really like to thank you for coming to talk to us today about this fascinating subject. Uh, I hope that listeners back at home have enjoyed the topic. If you'd like to email me, please contact me at drhogspod at gmail.com. Tim, thanks again for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.